What up all you beautiful Misfits and Rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 247 of Misfits and Rejects. Today's episode, I spoke with my old friend Tony Lawson from Les Soul Foundation. It was such a pleasure reconnecting with him. And I have something I'd like to share with you. It's something very special I hold dear to my heart. 20 years ago, in 2002, Tony and I played for UCLA soccer together. And in 2002, we won a national championship. And recently, UCLA contacted us all and had us all back to UCLA to honor us for that win because UCLA men's soccer has not won a national title since us. So as you can see, this is not something that happens every day. It's very difficult to win a national championship, and we were all extremely honored and grateful to be a part of that team. Well, Tony was a very key character within the UCLA soccer program, and I think within winning that national championship because Tony has this beautiful gift and confidence in himself, in the work that he does, and in his ability to help you also believe in the work that you're doing and who you are as a person. And I'd like to do something a little bit unusual. I don't normally do this, but Tony and I post show had a really nice discussion and I think it exemplifies Tony's strength. Tony's very clear message when he speaks to you in person, or as you'll learn throughout the episode, the path in life that he's chosen for himself in educating the youth of today. He has a gift. He makes you believe in yourself, what you're doing, and helps you understand how to achieve that. And the moment we shared together that I'm going to play for you now was a moment where it was summertime. Nobody had to be on campus. None of us had to be training. But Tony and I committed to each other that we were going to train every single day. We were going to lift each other and help sharpen each other's skills in hopes that it would then carry over into the next season and help us win a national title. And it did. It absolutely did. And this was a great reminder and moment for me that truly anything is possible. As you've heard me talk about in the past, I decided late in life that I wanted to play professional soccer. I chose a path that led me to UCLA. I got myself into the school. I walked on. I made the team. We won a national championship. It was so serendipitous how this all unfolded, but it really took a lot of work, a lot of focus, a lot of dedication. And then meeting Tony and a lot of other players on UCLA soccer team, we all shared that sort of commitment, that work ethic that then carried us into winning that national title. So real quick, I just want to share this because it's a really nice little post conversation that him and I shared. And I think it'll shed some light on our relationship, our friendship, and also what it takes to really design that life that you might be thirsting for and haven't found yet. So quick, just have a listen and then I'll introduce Tony. What I chose was appropriate for me. Um, and you're somebody who I had such a distinctive moment with and worked so hard with to know that I can just help move whatever you're doing the slightest bit. It's just really, really, really cool. Yeah, that's a memory I cherish. And I really appreciate you bringing it back up because I hold it close to my heart, I think, as you do. And I reference it in my mind. I didn't, we didn't. We can only share with each other because we're the only two doing it. Yeah, exactly. You know? exactly. So when you brought it up, I was like, fuck, he connected with it like I did too. And that was so meaningful to me just to get to share that and work hard with you. And like for me, it gave me the confidence 
and belief when you said that we were going to win. It's like, fuck yeah, we worked our asses off, dude. We are going to win for sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. We, we chose it every day. Yeah. I mean, this, we talked about it and we were, we were doing the work and you made me believe we can do it too. Um, I, I really hope you understand that shape. And like, it was, I don't know how to express just the fact that every single day you were mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is what we're doing. Cause it's what's going to get done. And then everything I've that's how I knew you to get to that point and everything I've seen and read and heard about you since is that it's, it's the same, it's not a different mindset. Yeah. You you know, we do what we say we're going to do. We do what we say we're going to do. hundred percent. So yeah. Wow. That for me is powerful. We did what we said we were going to do. As Tony said, we chose every single day to get up, keep our commitment to each other go out and work our asses off just to move that needle ever so slightly closer to the ultimate goal of winning a national championship. And I genuinely believe with all my heart that if you apply that formula to your life situation right now, if you're unhappy, you can start moving that needle closer to getting it to where you want to go within your life. And as you heard in Tony's words, and I hope you felt he has this gift of giving you confidence, giving you a belief in yourself And that translates into his work now. Tony's a teacher at Locke High School in Watts. As you'll learn, his school district services the biggest concentration of housing projects west of the Mississippi. So this area services impoverished families trying to get by, educate their children, and hopefully give them a better life. So Tony sees a lot. But the impact Tony is having is no doubt making a difference. He's a part of a group called See a Man, Be a Man, where the high school males enter this after-school program, and then Tony and his associates will start to begin showing them what it takes to be successful in life and implementing the same steps that him and I did at UCLA. Showing up, being committed to the goal, being authentic, being transparent, holding yourself accountable. These are all things that he tries to instill in the young men that come through the program and he's become very passionate in helping the youth. His Les Soul foundation focuses on soccer, helping people not just have access to the sport, but develop confidence in themselves, have a place to go that they feel safe and that they can meet new people and just develop into a more well-rounded human being. I know they work closely with the coyotes football club. And as Tony said, he is just somebody who decided that he was going to be an active participant in change rather than just talking about all the theories of how to change a society, a group of people, a neighborhood he was going to infiltrate and change within. And that's why I brought him on. So I have no doubt that you're going to get a lot from this episode. So please sit back, relax and enjoy this episode with Tony Lawson. Welcome to misfits and rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it, Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by Tony Lawson from Les Soul Foundation. Tony, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me, Chapin. It's nice to be here, man. And just for the context, which I'll do a little bit more in the intro to you, Tony and I spent a lot of years together at UCLA playing soccer, and we reunited two nights ago for our 20-year anniversary of winning the Men's Soccer National Championship. So it was a really good time to reconnect, get up to date on what Tony's doing, which he's been on my radar for a lot of years, and I wanted to bring him on. We just never connected for it. And here he is today to kind of tell a little bit about himself and what he's been doing. So Tony, would you mind just sharing a little bit about where you're from, where you come from, what you, uh, how your upbringing was? Yeah, sure, Chape. Um, let's see. I really born and raised in Southern California, a uh, place called Palmdale, Lancaster, and Antelope Valley. It's it's a it's an area really interesting. The area is kind of a it's a suburb of of Los Angeles, obviously, um, but it's it's like a desert area, uh, really dry, really windy, and um, not a lot to do. I think in the past it was either. Um, like one of the meth capitals of the country and or um, you're playing uh, athletics and getting the heck out of there. There's not really, there wasn't a lot in between um, when I was coming up. So came up there and then really from, from there went on to UCLA and from there you know, met you, won that national title. And out of that experience, decided to dedicate myself to education uh, specifically in the inner city. And I've been working as an educator and a coach for since then, really, uh, with a large majority of it being uh, right outside of Watts, uh, which is at a school that was created as a result of riots or rebellion, um, depending on, you know, one's perspective or point of view within that spectrum. But nonetheless, I've been I've been at a very historic high school here, teaching, coaching, and uh, you know, living. Yeah, dude. And over the years, as I kind of alluded to, been tracking your progress through social media and, and the things that you've been doing. And one thing that's always struck me, and this is the kind of point that really inspired me to uh, think about your life and why it would relate to my audience was the decision you made after UCLA to dedicate yourself to teaching and your students, because you could have gone the professional route. And for a lot of people that is within our, our world, that was something that everyone was aspiring to do. And a lot of them did have the opportunity. Some of us didn't, but you had the opportunity and chose to turn your back on the sport and go into something else. And this is, if you don't mind, I'd like to get kind of granular on this decision that you made, because within the, the conversations that I have, a lot of people just glaze over the potential emotional turmoil, the fear, the unknowing of making that big of a decision at that point in your life. And I'd like to kind of understand your point of view and, and how you chose that path and why you chose not to pursue the path of being a professional athlete. Wow. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me to be able to answer, I guess contextually, I have to go back to, you know, Palmdale, Lancaster a little bit and to really give it kind of a more holistic perspective of it. Um, I can't separate it. Um, while there, like I said, it, it's kind of one or the other. You are either, you know, it's a bedroom community in that the parents for the most part just sleep in the sleep in the bedrooms and otherwise they're traveling, you know, to, to work. Uh 
you know, to sustain what, which for the most part is a, a middle class kind of area, relatively speaking. And, um, in short, you know, sport for me was something that I kind of naturally went to just in school, the playground. And, um, one day or I started playing, you know, AYSO did well and then started playing, you know, youth club soccer and club coach takes us to Peru. Um, at the age of wow, 13, maybe. And he, you know, he was this, uh, Chilean guy in Palmdale, Lancaster with a bunch of, you know, white, black, brown kids, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of a really cool like, mixture of folks while there I did well and was offered a, a contract at the age of 14 to play professionally, you know, 13, 14, whatever it was. Uh, country where peru wow this so they saw me play and they were like yo you know roll down here 13 14 years old i didn't make that decision because i was like said in eighth grade at the time that you know my dad was kind of you know hey man i don't think that's the the best thing at the moment you know we're not ready for that as a family sit, sit you off at 13 years old um because it wasn't like he was going to pack up and go with me um, anymore than my mother could, you know, have a sister as well. So anyway, didn't take that opportunity. I started to become an elite player, um, or being identified as one, I should say. And in short, took a trip with what's called the Olympic development team, um, where they used to and still try to identify, you know, high level players towards, you know, being the best of the best in the United States. So I took a trip with that a group called the region four teams are the best in the Western part of you know, the continent essentially. And um, we went to Holland, Amsterdam and played well, balled out. I think this is my freshman year in high school and I was offered a professional contract to, uh, to, to play uh, from a team in Belgium. Um, Ander elect in Belgium, you know, called my house and was like, Hey, move out. You know, let's do this. 14 years old. So again, I didn't take the I didn't take the opportunity because quite frankly, at that age, it was like, if I'm already getting these chances now, you know, there's likely there's gonna be some in the future I can make a decision for. It's just not the right time for me. Again, I was young, definitely different era than it is in that today's world and context. And so I made that decision. My dad used to always say something that stuck with me. He would say, son. Somebody offers you $100,000 or a million dollars. Said, do you take it right now, right? Or if you can do something that you can earn $10 million, what do you take, right? And so, well, dad, I mean, I'll take the million dollars. He's like, but if you make $10 million over time, well, you're too stupid to go to college, boy. You probably should go and take these decisions. <laughs> and his, his point of view was that, you, know, you go for it now unless you're you're sure or certain that what you're investing in can otherwise be a larger outcome. And so we ultimately made the decision uh, that I would likely get you know, more opportunities. And so staying locally, stateside, um, I had a goal of playing collegiately, um, which was a good pathway at the time uh, still. And, you know, from there, so got into UCLA, we won national title, 
and I got injured my senior. So the year after we won, it got hurt. Uh, kind of last play of practice, talking shit. Just try to hit a shot off of uh, one of our All-American goalkeepers, Zach Wells, um, in training and rip muscle off my hip bone. It was such a large tear um, that I legit ripped a large portion of muscle off my hip bone. Um, it was pretty big force that I guess, you know, I exhibited at the moment. And, you know, I had to spend a year, you know, in recovery and, you know, really a year and a half. Uh, I had to wait a year to have surgery. I had a, there was a mass growing in my body. Um, they called it hetero, heterotopic ossification. I had to look all the shit up because, I mean, that was way, way beyond me. But I was growing. Um, my muscle was turning into bone because the force was so bad. And it wasn't identified as that distinctive of injury at the moment. So I'm trying to train and get it back. And I'm working it out. And I was just doing damage. And so um, that really forced me to kind of pause uh, in a lot of ways. And from there... I had to figure out what the fuck I was going to do with my life. And I knew I won. I loved soccer, loved the game, loved what the opportunities that afforded me. So I knew I wanted to be a part of it in that regard, but just my my energy changed um, because of the kind of pause I had to make. I mean, you know, when we were at UCLA, the, the competitive nature of it and the lack of a better word, um, you have the best and brightest in so many different fields of the in the world that are there. So the energy of the place is like you know just constant go and you know be bigger, better, stronger, faster, more efficient, whatever. And at the end of that, for me, I had to pause, and it just my energy shifted to education and service. In that, I wanted to, I don't know, I wanted to be the change that I ultimately wanted to see as opposed to reading about it, talking about it, theorizing about it. Um, not, I really wanted to just get into the trenches, for lack of a better word. And so ap- after, while I was making that decision, um, I had this mass in my body, essentially. Um, and because I still wanted to play, it was kind of this odd dichotomy in that I would go substitute teach for a couple of days. Because I didn't go to school to become a teacher. Like if you would ask me, you know, 25 years ago, you're an educator, I would have laughed at you. Um, and my mother was one. So that, that's something that I saw all the time. Obviously, I had a big imprint on my life, but uh, I never thought that was going to be one. And basically, from there, man, I would spend three days, you know, teaching, subbing, all levels. I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I would take any and every job. From kindergarten to, to high school, um, special needs, um, to, you know, the most distinctive special needs to, um, people who, you know, can otherwise, they don't really need you in the room anymore. They're paying attention to you're some guy and they know that they understand the game. And so I got that perspective for a couple of years while I was, had a rock in my leg, essentially. And, um, and so from there, there was kind of two moments that happened. One, uh, I was actually in a classroom, special edu- about to go into a classroom. I may be like, I don't know, bro, fucking 24, fucking 25 years old, if that. And um, 
and don't know shit from applesauce in terms of like teaching and like pedagogy, helping children learn, completely winging it. And I'm in a special needs class. Special needs means basically people who, um, you know, otherwise need to benefit from support throughout a school day um, towards getting skills, managing that day and just getting skills towards being able to access society with ideally less support. Some of them would always need like sort of lifetime support. And I'll never forget it, Chavin. Rolled up and they, you know, you meet the office manager. That's the person who really runs the school. It's the secretary, right? Knows everybody's name, number, address, what, when they're on, when they're doing good, when they're not, what their positive and negatives are from the boss on down to the, you know, the newest teacher. So office manager, you know, sees me and, you know, she's just like, hey, you're going to, you're going to have a, a tough day today. Like, why? She said, you're in special uh, education classroom. There's going to be other adults. But we have a student who's nonverbal. Um, she, you know, she thrashes and she doesn't deal with anybody well. Um, she picks at herself. And, um, you know, just know that you have support in the room. That's going to happen. And she said, among, the, you know, the others who have, you know, their needs, right? And we, I walk into the gym. All right, so, I, you know, they're eating breakfast. It's like the whole school, right? Um and I see the special education group, special needs group. So I start walking over to them. And one of the coolest fucking things ever happens, bro. Penny was her name. Penny in her walker, essentially. And she's in you know, middle school. As she gets closer, I see the self-inflicted scratches on her face, right in between the eyes in particular. She rolls up to me and grabs my hand. Everyone, you know, the adults, everyone was kind of shocked because like she didn't possibly deal with anybody. She rolled up to me and grabbed my hand. And so same day, right? This is this was a, just a trip of an experience. Like it, so again, I got a rock in my body. I still, you know, want to be a professional athlete, soccer player. You know, all the guys that we played with and know they're playing. You know, everybody's in their prime in that regard, not even building into it still. I mean, and I go into this classroom and she, she walks, we walk with her to the classroom. And that was my last interaction with her for the rest of the day. Like she had her routine. And unless I'm trying to teach the rest of the class math and I can't get them to, to get what I think is a simple, you know, addition, you know, problem, you know, process to figure out. And this one boy named Julian, black boy. He's sitting there and he's kind of rocking to himself. And, um, and there was another black boy uh, named Michael. And Michael looks up. Um, and he says, hey, yo, Mr. R. Now, it says Mr. Lawson on the board. Then I wrote Mr. L. He said, Mr. R. He says, you know what? I don't understand the question. I don't understand the question. Said, but I understand. I was like, what do you mean? And the other guy, the other boy's just, you know, he's shaking and he says, Do you need some clarity? <laughs> I said, Yes, well, yeah, matter of fact, I do. Do you even know what that that it, what that is? You know? And and then Michael, the one who's calling me Mr. R, says, It means to be revealed, Mr. And so my mind was just blown in this you know, three, four hours of time that I spent with these young people who you otherwise wouldn't think much of, or at least society doesn't. 
And they had a profound, like washed over me profoundly, like, oh, I'm supposed to do this. And I was able from there to reconcile the fact that I could say goodbye to the game. So once I got the rock out of my body, I rehabbed it some time with the Galaxy, like Reserve. Um, and then uh, some like what was called PDL at the time. So and we, you know, tra- traveled the country, still played a little bit, but it was enough for me to say, you know, goodbye on my own terms um, and then dive into teaching. Tony, that is beautiful, man. I mean, I've never heard any of that. I mean, it's so cool to know that you had those opportunities so young and then obviously found your your path in life. Before we get into the path that you did choose, in hindsight, in that pivotal moment, you know, as you kind of walked that that line between soccer and teaching, I would imagine your mind at times was going back to those moments where your life could have taken a very drastically different path. Did you ever toil with that? Was there any ever, was there ever regret? You know, as an adult, you can look back and forget that you were, you know, 13 or even younger when you got these offers yeah, and think that, fuck, I could have taken that. Like I could have done it. Like the Peru thing could have led to Barcelona or like the, yeah. the, you know, the Belgium team could have led to like something bigger in like England, you know, had you, had you ever gone through that emotion? Um, I don't know about if regret's the right word. Mm-hmm. Um definitely have thought about it i would say for me it was more of over time increasingly to varying uh, perspective on this uh spectrum i should say i just realized i I chose a different path and so i i can't regret my own choices um i i feel that i believe that way because to me there's a lot of value and having the agency to make a choice. Um, and, and otherwise the randomness of everything, <laughs> um, you know, again, to have that capacity and to still make your place in the world the way that you want to, I, I, I value incredibly. And so it was more for me, um, realizing that at, 13, I made the choice not to go. At 14, I made the choice not to go. At, you know, in my mid or early 20s, it was, okay, you're really, really close. And you know what? You can dedicate your life to, you know, getting yourself into that space. Or you can, you know, dedicate your life to the space where you were taught something, you know, has some of the profound impact on you um and how can you otherwise bring the two together for yourself in an authentic way and for others with those decisions that you made do you have a sort of formula or an algorithm to know that you're making the right choice and if so can you take us through that process in yourself um for me it's i don't really honestly look at it right and wrong um, maybe over time I've conditioned my mind to do that. Um, the right and wrong to me is, is all relative. And so to that point, the, I feel like the choices, if we're going to use right and wrong are wrong only in that you from a perspective of you would have, could have, should have done X. Whereas, 
I prefer to take the the lane of I had a reason to do Y, Z, A, red, blue. Like I've learned not to have regret. I've learned to really, really be present and thankful for the moment and take the the gifts that, I mean, it's in the word pre- present, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. a gift. Like It's really honestly taking that for what it's worth. And um, I really don't have any. Like, don't get me wrong. I've uh, wondered what it could have been like to you know play professionally or in a World Cup, right? Um, but at the same time, I think it's pretty cool that I didn't, and I know guys who did. Mm. You know, I didn't, and like the guy who did come, you know, trying to come up and take a picture with me. You know what I mean? It's like, dude, I coach you know, girl soccer in, in the, in the hood, <laughs> what, you know, why you want to say what's up to me? Oh, because beyond, you know, where the path that you went and the path that I otherwise uh, have taken when we intersected, there was a moment in that authentic, positive connection that helped us both. And, and so, so to have those moments throughout my life at this stage um, as a coach um, or like I say, as a former player, um, now just as an educator and seeing how those things kind of start to overlap. It's, it's, it's crazy. Let me tell you this quick story. Um, a few months back, I'm going to see one of our uh, teammates from that, that championship squad. I hadn't seen him in over, you know, fuck a decade. He was in town with his, with his family so um, my wife had to work, unfortunately, but I was able to bring the kids because it was the middle of the summer for me, which is a downtime for me. And we're parking at UCLA. And, and this is, like I said, a couple months ago, I hadn't been on campus in maybe five, six years. And I have a connection with the campus because I read undergraduate applications every single year. Um, so like a, that's like an intellectual uh, odyssey I take every year seeing about a thousand or so young minds, the insights of a thousand or so young minds who want to go to UCLA is pretty cool. Snapshot of the country every year for sure. But um, nonetheless, I hadn't been like on campus due to the pandemic and just, you know, taking the time to do other things with family and my work. And I'm coming up the steps uh, right in front of Pauley Pavilion and our former teammate, the head coach there, you know, just got together. They're talking. And as I'm walking up to them, I say hello. And not 10 seconds into the hello, I hear, Mr. Lawson? Hey, we're in the middle of the summer. Like, There's not a lot of people on you. It's a huge campus, don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously, it's called a university because there's so many people and avenues of integration into this, the space. But it's, it's in the middle of the summer. There's not a lot of folks there. And I hear, Mr. Lawson, and it's a student who I had had in this context over Zoom. The difference was I had a year of talking to her like that, not because me, she had her screen off, as did everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. So I spent a year engaging like in the void. <laughs> and it's short to have a person like that say, I, can, I recognize the fro from anywhere. Um, yeah, it just... 
it really helped me understand that I'm in the right place, the right space, and I made the decisions that I've made, um, and I'm right where I'm supposed to be. That's powerful, dude. And I'd like to tie in what you said a little bit earlier with when you make a decision and you have a reason for making that decision, even if you might feel trapped and like it's not a decision that you necessarily want to make, but under circumstances, I'm not using your example. Yeah. But like other people I talk to a lot feel like they're making decisions based on force rather than this like freedom of choice in a sense. Yeah. Um, but what I like about your story is that with time, the choices that you made led you to that moment, which then right. verified you had made the right choice. So for a lot of people listening, like every decision is going to have a different outcome. And even though say you make one and you instantly regret it, we'll give it some time because it might not feel right at first, but within the example you just gave, like you could find yourself standing in that perfect place at some point because of that decision, which is where you found yourself. Yeah, and no I doubt. Have- it was a, it was a chef's kiss moment. And to your point, it wasn't an easy road <laughs> to get there <laughs> by mm-hmm. any means. Um, and when I say I don't, they don't have regret. I mean that, but at the same time, there wasn't moments where I'm like, fuck, why mm-hmm. did I choose this? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and to that point, moments like that verify the why. Can you take us through those moments though? Cause we all have them. Yeah. You, know, you you're on a path that helps a lot of people and I know you're passionate about it, but there are moments I'm assuming where maybe you want to quit or maybe you question your decision. What are the, what are those like for you? What triggers them and how do you work through that? Internal. Um, I would I would say with with the work that I've chosen and especially where I've chosen it at, um, and some of the specializations and specializations in that, like working specifically with you know what are called at risk black boys from the inner city, um, in a room where some at times it's just me and them. Uh, there's some distinctly tough moments that can happen. Um, and that you work through with another person who at the moment in time, you're their teacher and or mentor, they're a student, but at the end of the day, like another person that um, can be difficult. So there's, I've learned that to not take myself so seriously, but treat moments as seriously as I take myself. And so what I guess what I mean by that is I really try to, to engage with the reason why it's difficult is difficult because I care everything else that I've cared about. That's been difficult and I've stuck with, I've been successful with wildly. And so that keeps me grounded in that. I know that I'm going to get through it. There's, I mean, your life, we're always either going into a storm coming out of one or that little bit of spectrum in between right but as long as you're still on the boat of life so have that that going with you and for you the storm's either going to pass and or you know you can't get too happy when it's when it's all bright and sunny because you know one one is coming and so i i keep myself grounded in that regard but there's some tough moments mm-hmm. yeah so you're a high school teacher at watts high school that, it's called Lock, it's called Lock High School in Lock Watts. Lock High School in Watts. Okay, and you're part of a really unique program called See a Man, Be a Man. Do you mind yeah. taking us through that? What that is? 
Sure, I would love to. Uh, Locke is named for Elaine Leroy Locke. Uh, he was the first African-American Rhodes Scholar uh, at Harvard. He uh, intellectual out of the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, essentially the school was named after him because there was a riot rebellion in Watts where National Guard had to be brought in, um, martial law on the streets, where an outcome of that four to five days of violence, it was determined that part of the issue was that there was a lack of educational opportunities in the area. And so the school was placed there. Initially, it was, you know, successful, very high level scholarship, um, an amazing band, and uh, sports teams. It has an amazing athletic history at the school. Um, you know, baseball Hall of Famers, gold medalists, track and field, you know, WNBA, you know, Hall of Famers, Olympians. And it's in an area that services the largest housing projects west of the Mississippi. And over time, the community um, became very, very violent and kind of peaked in the 90s. And so there's just been generational issues and fragment word trauma in the area uh, where the school was located. And so the school, not just law, but most schools in the country uh, struggle with the edu- educating of our youth. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but all data points show that the group that doesn't perform, that performs the, the least um, on academic exams or those metrics are African-American, otherwise black boys. And so the school uh, decided to make targeted efforts to help uh, ensure the academic, social, emotional success of these young men. So about 10 years ago, I had a principal approach me and say, hey, um, you know, because of these issues that I aforementioned, let's um, we're going to pilot this program where we're going to put you in a room with our most at-risk boys. And so to give you some context, it's a high school. There's at the time, there's maybe 2,200 students or so. And it was broken up into seven or eight different entities. When I say broken up, I'm talking like different administration, different uniform. I mean, like a motherfucking prison. We can't make it up. Um, and the boys and girls at the school never interacted with the from the other schools. So you had lock one and two and three and four, but they're all on the same campus, but one, two, three, and four don't interact. One is different shirt color than two, two is different shirt color than three. All of them had different principles. The only context in which they came together was athletics and I guess school functions like a dance or so, you know I mean? There was, and even then I don't remember the school having them. And so the thought was to bring boys from all the different what we call academies 
into one room during a specialized homeroom and that, you know, have better outcomes, right? And so I partnered with a professor from UCLA who had this program that has success at another school and it looked like, and he wanted to implement it there on site. So I did that for, for a year. We're talking boys who have ankle bracelets because, you know, they have legit parole, probation, you know, officers um, who are checking on their progress making sure they're going to school, where they're at, when they're supposed to be there. Um, all of them have experienced gun violence in some way, shape, or form. They've either been shot at, seen somebody shot and killed. I mean, that's really the community. It's a very real thing. And um, and or have are part of gangs, affiliated with gangs. And when I say a part of or are affiliated, this is – Something I now have the opportunity in this case to just kind of explain because it was explained to me. It's less of a choice. You have to understand the culture and the conditions that are creating the culture, both outside and inside, that make it a religion. So if your father is a Buddhist or Muslim, Christian, you're likely to be one. If their father's a Buddhist or Muslim, et cetera, right? Well, if your father, your mother, your uncle, your aunt, your cousins were all part of this gang, then what else do you know? It's similar in its access in terms of community. Um, otherwise, where you think spaces are safe, Um Etc. Um, I said it's, it's nuanced and it's it's complex, but nonetheless, these boys taught me that that this is what they were facing outside of everything else. I was fucking trying to talk to them about, like, okay, Mister, but that you know that bullet ain't going. You know what I mean? And oh, that education don't make me bulletproof. It's like, yeah, you're right. Why? Because one of the boys in that space was shot multiple times. And thankfully, uh, you know, he survived it and he ultimately finished school. Um, but, you know, that, that's the reality of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're essentially, many of them are in a war zone. And so See a Man, Be a Man was another program that came along because that one by myself, I was just getting my ass kicked. Um, and there was, there was another program in the community uh, organized by an organization called Family Inc., and these elder black men who had created a structure in the times where they were trying to push into schools and they were piloting at the same time. So I saw these men in suits, you know, every day working with some freshmen while I had the toughest 10th, 11th, and 12th graders. <laughs> <laughs> and in short, they were, you know, they were, you know, and everything separate and segregated. So they didn't, they didn't know I existed. Mm. Um, and we, Thankfully, you know, cross paths. And for the last nine years, I've been working with uh, the CMM BMM program, and we've had distinctive success because of the model uh, in which we're able to implement. Yeah, I did a little research prior to this conversation. You guys have a hundred percent graduation record with the individuals who participate in the program. Is that accurate? Yeah, they all they all have graduated high school. That's incredible. About eighty percent going to college. Uh, I appreciate that because we're talking for 
a good number of them oftentimes will be the first person in their family to graduate from high school. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty cool. So the program itself, just give us a little bit of the daily routine or what is it? Like what, what's the program you put them through? So it's definitely, it's not my pro I do get to implement and facilitate the program um, as I otherwise wish to. Um, But it was created by a man named Torrance Brandon Reese. He um, alive and well, beautiful, uh, beautiful elder uh, man who he's an artist. He's a singer. Um, and I believe he's from, you know, New Orleans. And in fact, I know he is from New Orleans and in short, he had this passion for, um, you know, helping black boys and ma- into manhood. And so he created a foundation that was starting to do this work. And he had a network of other people that black men specifically in the community here in Los Angeles, um, a lot of it born out of Lamert Park, which is kind of a black cultural hub. Uh, not even kind of is a black cultural hub mm-hmm. here in the city. And it, um, you know, in short, other able and willing uh, black men to say, let's give an hour out of our day to be mentors, not not to work for a school, not to get paid for by schools, to otherwise not be kind of tied to any rules other than what's right and best for this young man or this young boy who we're trying to show to be a man. I keep making that distinction because one thing that we teach in particular and the curriculum is that it has nothing to do with age. Society might see you one way and, and or will treat you as such, but manhood has nothing to do with age. It has to do with mentality. And so it's a nine, um, it's a nine point program that starts and roots itself in spirituality, mm-hmm. moves itself through culture, education, economics, career, politics, health, um, and then ultimately family and then personal responsibility. That's where it's all centered in. The personal responsibility is that ultimately whatever you learn, you know, it's up to you to apply. You can't expect any more um, want for anything outside of what you can or will control. And so to start to take ownership of that. And so we show them on a daily basis, got about an hour long class. Uh, where I'm for, I have an 11th and 12th grade cohort. I'm the teacher of record, but I completely decenter myself from the space traditionally as an educator to mm-hmm. where really a lot more of a mentor. Um, so as example, we, we sit in a circle, um, you know, it's not me standing up and pointing at something. Um, you know, we, it's a non-traditional curriculum in that, you know, we'll start off with, with stretching and breathing, um, you know, mindfulness, and then, you know, talk about issues that they're facing and give them otherwise an understanding of pathways that they can take and understand that the different men that they are either interacting with on a daily basis or that we are able to bring in demonstrate that black men and just men in general are a monolith. There's many kind of roots up a mountain in terms of success. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you got to be personally responsible to yourself mm-hmm. to making that happen. Would you say that being taking personal responsibility for yourself as a man is what defines you as a man? I, I would say that's that's a pretty concise way of putting it. 
the only thing I would add is the um, the notion of holding yourself accountable to that. So that personal responsibility is a high accountability to, if I say I'm going to do, I need to get it done. If I, if it doesn't get done, there isn't an excuse for it. There's a reason why I was not successful. And if I, if that reason or reasons were mostly me, then I need to own that so I can then change that, you know, and improve from that. Otherwise, you know, what was the point of embarking on that endeavor in the first place if that is not a goal to ultimately get it done and or to improve on such things? And how do they interpret that? Like, I would imagine the communities that they're growing up in, a man's masculinity plays a huge role in that definition. Huge. And that has its own sort of sort of um, understanding within yeah. within themselves. So it's like, I love that, like take personal responsibility because I've struggled with this within myself, like feeling like I didn't grow up with a male figure who was like manly in the stereotypical sense of the word. My dad's very sensitive. He likes to talk about his feelings, you know, like he's cried in front of me a bunch. And so it came out in therapy later in life that it was like, hey, like I struggle with this because I don't know if I'm a man or not because I had this as an example, mm-hmm. you know, and the movies social media are all portraying this one image where your definition gives me the confidence to say, I'm a man, dude, I take, I totally take personal responsibility for all my shit, you know, but I would imagine with the kids that you encounter, that's a harder message to convey that you're okay. Just taking personal responsibility for your shit and who you are making no excuses. And that's enough to make you a man. You don't have to go fight the biggest guy to be a man. Right. And that, that, that's definitely, uh, the the sense uh at most base level what we try to convey we and we also convey that if you need to and otherwise um have making the choice to defend yourself against the biggest man or person <laughs> out there then mm-hmm. you better be prepared for it you know mm-hmm. that that's if that's what you're going to be choosing to engage in mm-hmm. um and or that's the moment that presents itself to you and so um, being just very real and with that, it's we make it a point to something. We don't. We're not trying to change them. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think about you. Just trying to help you see and understand. This is the reality of these likely realities of these of these choices that you otherwise can make. Mm-hmm. And so, when it comes to like notions of what a man does and doesn't do, you know, we're open and honest with them. Like myself in particular, I speak for myself. Um, you know, I have no shame in telling them, yeah, I cried, dude. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like when stuff is, t- when it's, something's painful, yeah, tears are flowing, you know? Okay. You know, that That's reality of it, you know? Oh, and that's not necessarily something that's painful or negative. That's, you know, positive. You know, I cried at the birth of my children. Mm-hmm. You know, doc, doc, doctors were more concerned for me than they were for my wife. Like, are you okay, <laughs> sir? <laughs> yeah it's it's so it, it's uh it's it's honestly just being authentic with them and being consistent so show, showing up every day and making no excuses you know for why you're in the space you know um again if they choose to come into the space let's let's get the fuck on and mm-hmm. if you and if you're choosing to detract from it 
then you need to get the fuck on. Mm-hmm. And to be, you know, honest about it, that is a level of conversation we can get to because of the trust factor. And we're not talking about a super high level of trust, but trust enough to know that I'm being authentic with you. Mm-hmm. And I don't want anything from you other than to pro- help you because that's what I've, I've decided to do. Have you seen any of the young men really grab what you might call their purpose and run with it or understand that you can have a purpose in that room and work towards it, but know that it also might change and just give yeah, them the skill set to identify something that they, they're willing to like set a goal towards and move after. Yeah, we, definitely. Uh, I would say on a, like an immediate kind of acute level, those who we see grow and who grab onto it, we get them, uh, we raise money throughout the year and we get them suits um, to demonstrate that they've kind of had this process of improvement over that curriculum, that core root curriculum I talked about mm-hmm. uh, relative to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, it's not by comparison of it. It's relative to them. I like that. Get, there's some, get some basic underlying things that you have to know, like, like the curriculum that I uh, mentioned um, when I say no, it there's certain things that we say after each, you know, it's kind of a call and response, you know. So as an example, when we talk about spirituality, it's not just, okay, no spirituality. It's spirituality, I'm conscious of a higher power, you know, than they say it. So call and response. So we, it becomes ingrained. And mm-hmm. ultimately, they have to have a definition for themselves of what that is. I'm not telling you what that is. I'm just saying be a, we're conscious of it. What it is for you and what you're choosing to follow, great. But otherwise, like, we know that, as I tell them, if I if I can't stare at the sun because it's more powerful than me, then at minimum, you know, I have to have reverence for its power. And so at the end of the day, there's this something that we can't touch, grasp, this otherwise unknown, but we're here. Then we have to at least be acknowledged, acknowledge that. So what is that for you? And, you know, how's that process been? Here's what I do. You know, here's what this man does. And so the if they can own that on an acute level, they earn the suit. Um, we get, you know, we get them suited and booted and they go and get, uh, you know, fitted for, um, it's tailored to them. Um, we take them to a nice, an incredibly nice meal afterwards. Once we're, you know, there's like 30 of us, you know, steak dinner, you know, meal that, you know, they never had before sort of thing. Um, so that's all, that's all cool. But I would say, on a longer aspect of it, um, this program and teaching in general is really just like planting a seed. And sometimes the seed's already planted. You're just adding water to it um, and or helping to illuminate, shed light onto it, you know, but the reality of the seed, that seed's in darkness, right? you know, and you don't always see the immediate fruits of that. Um, but the great part about it is you start with that one seed and you can have an orchard. And so over time you start to see, you know, when they go off to college, uh, those who do, you know, how they start to flourish or, you know, we've, we've had one individual, you know, he, he's trying to run for governor, (laughs) you know, it's a long shot campaign, obviously, but nonetheless never thought that, you know, he would have taken such a path um, knowing where he's coming from, what he's had to deal with. Uh, We've had, you know, other young people, you know, working on their, 
in like directorial uh, careers when it comes to, you know, movies and, you know, just things of the like. Um, we, you know, we have, you know, young man who's like, you know, all that college stuff is great, but I want to make money and I need to make money. And the way that I best want to do that is, you know, cars. So what's up with this car game though? Cause everybody has cars around here. Mm-hmm. So something, there's something to that. And knowing that he, a certificate in terms of being, you know, a mechanic, um, and has his own car, biz- a mechanic, you know, business. You know, those are. That's when you start to see the fruits of that. It, that that's that's when it's it becomes. Oh wow, this is really cool. What's the most unique entrepreneurial perspective that one of your students has come up with? Or it doesn't have to be entrepreneurial, but like so outside of the box, you're like, wow, dude, I would have never thought that that is even a path to pursue. Hmm. It's interesting. I think it's mostly on how they, I, to answer that question, I would have to speak to kind of the other teachers in the space, what the program and what we try to teach every single day, how that's kind of been expressed in us. I mean, I've worked with some teacherpreneurs. I see. Um, and so I mean, just literally one of the other teachers that we work with, he had to resign from teaching because he does educational rap across the country to where schools are calling him in because he's talking about the dangers of, you know, vaping or dangers of bullying, but he flows and he raps with it. And so he, it's called music notes. And essentially they, to, to my understanding knowledge, he learned this practice, you know, cutting it. And that that sword, sharpening that sword with the students that we work with, you know, to the point where he's like, I have to make a decision. <laughs> That's cool. I like yeah. that. Um, an- another uh, teacherpreneur, uh, his his program is called Strong Visuals, and so he's he started off by cutting their hair to help uh, them get ready for soup day. And they started taking pictures of it. And then he's now it's a photography business. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where there's days he has to leave campus. Like, hey, y'all, I can't camp a class. And I'm about to get out of here because, you know, I got this gig I got to go uh, hit up, you know, and because y'all taught me that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, myself, uh, it inspired me to, to start the, the uh, foundation uh, with my family here that I was talking about for educational and academic outreach and extension programs, um, you know, led me to write a book with my soccer team. Mm. And that's uh, Les Soul Foundation, right? Yeah. So the Les Soul Foundation, we we partnered with um, another group um, called Fab Five. We made student athlete authors. And um, again, it was born out of the conversations I'm having with these boys about okay well what would you do or what would what would you like to see happen and um this space has helped engender some of these ideas and it leads to just wider outcomes sometimes with them directly um in partnership so um i know that the one the teacher who i'm referring to with cutting of hair he started to employ you know a, a student who graduated 
Mm-hmm. You know, and he started cutting hair. Now I, I believe he's doing his own hair thing. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's just it's cool how that kind of organically has happened, and it it's demonstrated to me that I'm not going to see everything or know of everything. But if it's impacting the educators, there's no <laughs> doubt about it that the students are going to have uh, something that's positive going to flow from. One hundred percent, dude. One hundred percent. So yeah, with uh, Les Soul Foundation. So there's a book out, like the the audience can check it out, like on Amazon or what? Yeah. So the, the book is called Kickin' Fiction. And so um, it, my idea was how can – not everybody's going to be able to go to UCLA, right? Not everybody's going to be a pro. Um, but everybody can be – you know, this is why I love the idea of your podcast and the name of it, a, a misfit. Like, you don't always have to, you can still fit in somewhere, but you, you can be someone that doesn't fit in exactly as everybody else. And you can stand out in that regard. Um, misfit doesn't have to be a negative thing. Um, it just means you just don't fit exactly the way that it looks like here or this moment. And so, um, yeah, we, we wrote a book. Uh, called Kick and Fiction. So it was just a, a short, basically a short story anthology where each of us use soccer as a means just to tell a story. And yeah, that led to that program expanding to where we started to reach out and connect with other uh, organizations to help more youth outside of the school, um, you know, play soccer, get educational kind of enrichment opportunities with tutoring and the like. Um, a ultimate goal for us would be we could have a, a sporting program where just instead of everybody shaking hands at the end of the game or, you know, this stage, handshaking is coming back or waving to each other at the end of the game. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, like they do internationally in a big game, you change like a pennant. You know, I want to get to the point where there's youth that I work with or create a program in which they're exchanging, you know, here's my book title or here's my, you know, here's my production company. You know, you know, here's it's like there's really no limit to it. And, it, it, and sh- sharing and exchanging that and, and growing from it, um, that that is an ultimate goal of mine. Um I think there's an opportunity there to, to, in other word, another lack of a better word, help those who are using soccer to connect. As you well know, you bring in all types of different personalities and types of people, with different skill sets. It's amazing that you can connect with that on the field. But I want to also provide programming that allows those individuals to grow in other avenues um, by using. You know, the Lay Soul Foundation has kind of a launch pad towards that and into it with sport being kind of its root connection. Right. And Lay Soul Foundation, though, is rooted in soccer. Can you just yeah, give us the ethos of it? Yeah. A little so, bit more defined? Yeah. So so- soccer in particular, mm-hmm. um, we want to use soccer to help people in inner city have access to it so that um, you don't have to pay the high club fees to play. Right. Um, and so from there, it's used, okay, now that you're playing, let's make sure that you get the habits of, of mind to be academically sound so that when you get to high school or, and or if you get to college, you can maintain your ability to stay on the field mm-hmm. and 
learn the skills to continue to build for yourself um, as you need. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the, the pie in the sky goal is, like I said, for them to have their own programming to where they're sharing what it is that they're creating and producing um, with others and, and starting their own journey and watering their own you know, seeds. Mm-hmm. So, how do we get involved? Like, how do we donate? How can we donate to Least Soul Foundation or CMM Man? Like, I'd like the audience to know. I'll, I'll put a link yeah. in the show notes. Yeah, great. Um, just that there's you know, both our 501c3 nonprofits. Um, so we have, you know, the EIN numbers um, that I, I can provide for you where people can donate. Um, mm. Definitely right in the States, you can write off as ta- you know, tax write off sort of thing. Um, the money specifically would go to, you know, CMM, be a man. Generally speaking, it goes to help the boys get suits. And then um, ultimately trips off campus so that they can have more experiential um, experiences. Uh, so they can actually kind of touch and talk to people and see, uh, see things that they otherwise wouldn't. So have them help them travel, um, et cetera. And then specifically for the Les Soul Foundation, it would go towards, Helping our our soccer uh, recreational soccer based initiatives to have the funding to have the, you know, people who otherwise struggle to pay for cleats and shin guards um, to have access to those things and access a place to play with balls and a field that's nice and you know ultimately a facility that they can go to that's safe and and well lit um, to where they can really use soccer as a means to play, have fun, and also grow into what it is that they ultimately want to do. I love that, Tony. You're doing good things, my brother. Listen, if you could talk to one audience member, whether it's a youth or an adult, who's coming to a point where they want to make a big decision in their life, whether it's leaving a job they hate, leaving the relationship they're unhappy with, taking that first trip, whatever it may be, could you leave us with some words of wisdom to inspire them to make that decision or at least help them along with that decision? Uh, sure. I, I can attempt to do so. I would say, I would say um, make the decision. And once you make it feel empowered by the fact that you can, and then that you've done it. Once you hold on to that notion and have that power and recognize what that power can be. You can then recognize you have the power to also make it be successful and, and get out of it what you want and or what you need. I think um, too often we, we, we limit ourselves based upon uh, the perspective or perceptions of others when really you can create the perception and the perspective that you want. And we ultimately do. It's just a matter of owning it and making it happen. Beautifully said, Tony. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Chapin. It's been awesome. Appreciate it. Awesome, Tony. Thank you so much for your time. And folks, remember, on this boat of life, you're either going into a storm, coming out of one, or sailing in between storms. Never get too comfortable when the sailing is easy, but try to enjoy it before the next storm. Thank you for that magical quote, Tony. I will keep that close to my heart and at the top of my mind as I continue to navigate this beautiful life. And folks, if you want to get involved, if you want to donate to Les Soul Foundation, 
It's in the show notes, so just scroll down and you can donate there. You can get involved in whatever way, shape, or form you want. Same with see a man, be a man. It's all in the show notes. If you'd like to help these young men get suited and booted, as Tony said, that would be awesome. So be sure to click those links in the show notes and check those opportunities out. Thank you again, Tony. I wish you all the best as you continue to do the magical, powerful work that you do within the Locke High School community of Watts. You are loved and appreciated. And thank you folks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. This was a magical episode for me just to reconnect with my old friend and share that magical moment that him and I had together at UCLA 20 years ago. God, time flies. It's weird to think that it's been 20 years, but it has. And I've had a very beautiful, rich life throughout the last 20 years. So I have no complaints and I hope you don't either. And if you do and you're unhappy with your life situation, well, let's get to work. Let's figure that out. Always feel free to reach out if you have any thoughts, feelings, or questions. You can reach me at chapin at misfitsandrejects.com. I'm always happy to jump on a Zoom or Skype call with you wherever you are in the world. Feel free to subscribe to Misfits and Rejects and share it with a friend. That's definitely the best way for me to grow my audience and get this message out there. Thank you all so very much. I think you all are so very beautiful, and I'll see you in next week's episode. Take care. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation where you're at possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.